Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976 permits limited use of copyrighted material for news and educational purposes. This podcast is copyrighted by the Underground Christian Broadcast. Welcome to episode 51 of the Underground Christian Podcast, where the Bible and the 21st century collide head-on in a spectacular display of shock and awe. I interrupt the previously planned topic to bring us a timely reminder of the signs of the times. This is an era of creeping brain fog and surreal events, so we can benefit from reminders of where we are. To put it bluntly, our government is at war with us. The leaders of our government, no matter what they may say or how they may act, are actually trying to kill us by supporting and promoting the things that will. They want you, me, and a whole lot of other people dead, yet are quite concerned that we may find out they're responsible for the things that are killing us, and that might make us want to hold them accountable. There's been a lot of discussion lately about the Nuremberg trials in the alternative press, and maybe the leaders have noticed. You may recall that after World War II, many people thought it was good and appropriate to try some high-profile Nazis for war crimes and hang them in public. That was as much for show as anything else, because the winners of the war never actually got around to dismantling the Nazi system that was secretly supported by many people on our side of the Great Pond. While we hanged the less fortunate Nazis, our intelligence agencies and our military services shuttled the important Nazis, which were the ones we had some use for, to faraway places, including the good old U.S. of A. Contrary to what many history books might say, World War II never actually ended because the Nazis never actually surrendered in a formal way like the Japanese did in their humiliation. The Nazis just kind of quit and went about reimagining themselves as citizens of various nationalities. So after a long pause in hostilities, World War II has resumed as World War III, except that this time around, the war is being fought covertly. The real Nazis, not the pretend ones that the left likes to rail against, the real ones learned that they should not be so blatant about their desire to exterminate large numbers of people because that has the undesirable effect of fostering resentment and hostility that could end up with their necks being wrapped up nicely like a bow. So instead, in a nod to self-preservation, they decided it would be wiser to invite their victims to participate in their own demise by labeling their demise as something desirable, like health and safety and then selling it to the gullible sheeple as a benefit. In 1 Thessalonians 1-3, the Thessalonians were concerned that they may have missed the second coming of Jesus Christ, so the Apostle Paul felt compelled to correct their misconception about the end times, which in this passage is referred to as the day of the Lord. He wrote to them, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, Peace and safety! Then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So just who is this mysterious they whom Paul refers to? It's the people who are without hope, meaning the people of the world. The world being the organized political, social, economic, and military system that has been constructed to advance the agenda of Satan. These are the people who are not aware that anything is amiss. In today's world, they sleepwalk through life seeking after money, power, fame, and entertainment, and especially entertainment. They hate God, love all kinds of different forms of sin, believe themselves to be good people, do good things now and then, and place their faith and hope in scientists, academics, government, and the mainstream media mouthpieces. 
They swallow just about any tale told them by these four gods, small g, never doubting the integrity of the talebearers, and always critical and dismissive of anyone who tries to warn them that they may be the victim of some serious gaslighting. Sometimes you may hear these people referred to as normies, and sometimes as NPCs, non-player characters. They are the hopeful but clueless people the Bible warns are going to experience sudden and unavoidable disaster in an explosion of violence and mayhem as they frantically grasp for their other two gods of peace and safety. Disaster happens when people refuse to see the tsunami approaching and decide to just stare mesmerized at the pretty wave. World War III is not being waged for the most part with guns and explosives, but as a fifth-generation war, the characteristic of which is that we cannot see our enemy, they do not wear identifiable uniforms, and they do not advertise their loyalties. They don't speak like military dragons, but rather like fatherly and motherly professors. Fifth-generation weapons are hidden in plain sight, some on towers and some not, and the casualties of these weapons often succumb in locations distant from the weapons themselves, so there's not an obvious connection between the weapons and their succumbing. The wagers of this war are good at their job, yet it's not an entirely one-sided war. There are people who are aware we are fighting a war, and some are even fighting back. One of these people is Sasha Latipova, one of my very favoritest people in the whole world, even though we've never met or spoken to each other. She recently published an article entitled, You Can't Inject Your Bioweapon and Have It Too, which is such a good article that I've decided to review it today. The article is a timely, valuable, action-packed source of real information that's backed by references that establish her as a legitimate researcher and resistor of evil. Her article was posted on her substack on November 15th, 2023, and it starts out with the following statement. I recommend watching the Kill Shot documentary or read the book Dr. Mary's Monkey in conjunction with this post. This will give you a really good historical perspective to any claims of senior scientists at CDC, VRC, pharma, academia, etc. that they were not planning to make bioweapons, did not know this was possible to do, stop this hate already type of statements. Hey, stop the hate, Sasha. The poor doctors and scientists were only trying their best to help people in a difficult circumstance, don't you know? So what is this kill shot documentary she speaks of? Let's listen to the teaser to get a sense of what the movie's about. In 1963, the world was a powder keg ready to explode. With the CIA holding a match to fuses on every continent. From Vietnam to Cuba, clandestine operations were being waged to preserve a fascist new world order, which emerged from the ashes of the Third Reich. Assassination teams within the CIA had their eyes on two sitting heads of state. Fidel, a few years earlier, had survived an agency-led coup d'etat. The other head of state, President John F. Kennedy, had scuttled that attempted overthrow and pledged to dismantle the agency, which was already planning his demise. U.S. soil was no longer sacred nor safe from the murderous reach of the CIA, which now reached ambitiously into the heartland of America and into the bayous of New Orleans. Not me, however, I'm a, a, a communist. A young girl found herself caught up in a clandestine covert operation to eliminate Fidel Castro. This wouldn't be a shot heard around the world, but rather a silent shot of super cancer-causing poison derived from a monkey simian virus called SV40. 
a team of fascists hell-bent on defeating communism, directed by the CIA, was formed in New Orleans. This den of vipers included the head of the National Cancer Society, the FBI's former head agent in mafia-controlled Chicago, and a paramilitary instructor who would bring in a double agent named Lee Harvey Oswald. This tale has everything from murder, espionage, a tragic love story to bioweapons and the genesis of gain-of-function research. At the end of this, we'll have one dead doctor, multiple dead agents, and a dead president. I'm Shannon Joy. Stay tuned as I take you through the full story. Now, if you want to watch that documentary, you may have a hard time finding it on the Google. It just doesn't come up. It's not The Kill Shot with Rachel Cook. It's The Kill Shot by Shannon Joy, and you can watch it on Rumble, BitChute, or a few other free speech platforms, but that's about it. I'll link to it in the description. The pertinent part of this documentary is not that the CIA is an evil organization or that it does not have our best interest in mind, although those things are true. It's that the desire and planning to develop a bioweapon goes way back to a period that predated even me, if you can believe it. The plan to exterminate large numbers of people may not have been fully formed in the heads of humans who were developing the early bioweapon technology, but it was fully formed in the mind of something, and that something was ultimately guiding the development of the bioweapon. It was a stealthy guiding, a subtle guiding by a thoroughly malevolent intelligence. That intelligence knew where it was going, even if it took mankind a while to catch up. Sasha is not fooled, and she has this to say about the film. I think this is very important material for many reasons. This is what she wrote. Real gain of function, extracting new toxins from dying cancerous bodies of animals in this film. But do you think they stop there? Of course they do illegal human experiments, briefly discussed in the film. The CIA's organization of this process consists of dirty and clean labs with protocols for compartmentalizing work so that nobody understands what they are really working on. Of course, this continues today in the U.S. as biomedical research. Compartmentalization is an old, well-established protocol in intelligence, a world in which I once participated. The idea is to keep the components or compartments of an operation separate and distinct, with one group of people working on one small piece of the overall project, while other groups work on their own small pieces, none of them knowing what the others are doing. That's how the people in charge keep secrets. The fewer people who know the whole picture, the fewer people can threaten their agenda. John F. Kennedy knew the whole picture, or much of it anyway, and when he threatened to dismantle the CIA and their operations for running a government within a government, they got rid of him. Assassination of the President of the United States is of no consequence to these people. He's just another eater who became useless. Whenever an organization of any kind accumulates unchecked and uncheckable power, when its operations are so shrouded in darkness that no one can discern they even exist, it becomes a serious threat to humanity. I don't care who they say they work for or to whom they proclaim loyalty. No human being or institution can be trusted with unchecked power. Even in ancient Rome, the emperors were controlled by a shadowy organization known as the Praetorian Guard. In speaking about the Praetorian Guard, History.com writes, they were known to engage in espionage, intimidation, arrests, and killings. The unit was a major player in the webs of deceit that characterized imperial Rome, and they were willing to slaughter and install new emperors. That sounds eerily similar to the CIA and other intelligence organizations of today. 
Maybe that's what President John F. Kennedy was trying to warn us about back on April 20th, 1961, when he said, The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. President Kennedy was correct back in 1961, and his wisdom is still applicable today. He eventually realized the threat that the CIA posed to America and threatened to dismantle it. And just a few short months later, he was dead. His nephew, Robert Kennedy Jr., whose father was also assassinated, has some thoughts about that infamous event which he shared on Fox 11 News Ontario. Uh, Democratic White House contender Robert Kennedy Jr. blaming the CIA for assassinating his uncle, former President John F. Kennedy, back on November 22, 1963. There's a 60-year cover-up. The Warren Commission was run by Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA, who my uncle fired. Congress found that, yeah, it was a plot. It was a conspiracy. There were multiple people involved. If I were RFK Jr., I would think twice about running for president of the United States, which he's doing. The Warren Commission was the government organization that was created to investigate the assassination of JFK and bring those responsible to justice. RFK Jr. believes the Warren Commission was compromised by its leader, who was the former head of the CIA. And not only that, the Warren Commission leader had been fired by Kennedy. 
If the CIA were involved, this man would have known about the assassination plan and likely would have been directly involved in its planning and operation. So it does raise some serious questions that he was put in charge of the commission investigating the event. Secrecy is anathema to a free republic, and I agree with the former president that it does far more harm than good for the proper functioning of a free republic. It's great, though, for the proper functioning of a slave republic in which the people are the de facto property of the state. As Sasha Latipova so presently pointed out in her article, the depth of denial of evil never stops to amaze me. For evil to achieve its goals, you don't need to commit evil acts. You just need to deny that they are possible. I think she means that regular people don't need to participate in the acts of evil to bring them about. They just need to deny that such acts are possible with their politicians or scientists or religious leaders or doctors or pharmacists or professors, and that will be enough to eventually allow it to happen. Denial over the potential danger of the COVID-19 mRNA shots consumed most of the world a couple of years ago, and it's still consuming many people today as the government and pharmaceutical companies continue to push both the latest iteration of the COVID shot and the mRNA technology that is behind most other injectables at this point. Sasha was one of several people who brought the dangers of this technology to the world's attention, at least for those who were paying attention. This recent article discusses several effects of the so-called vaccine which by now are so well documented that the government would immediately withdraw it from the market if the government was actually concerned with the health of its citizens. Sasha's article continues, There are dozens of various mechanisms of harm designed into mRNA technology as it exists in theoretically pure, uncontaminated form. That's why this technology has never been put to any application beneficial to health despite decades of hype and billions poured into its development under cover of biomedical research. The numerous mechanisms of harm by mRNA have been documented by prominent scientists and doctors over the past three and a half years. She cites an article in the journal Food and Chemical Toxicity, for example, volume 164, June 2022, titled Innate Immune Suppression of SARS-CoV-2 mRNA Injections, The Role of G-Quadruplexes, Exosomes, and MicroRNAs. The highlights to the article read, with my added comments, mRNA vaccines promote sustained synthesis of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. That's the part of the weapon that does internal damage to human organs. The spike protein is neurotoxic and it impairs DNA repair mechanisms. Neurotoxicity damages our nervous system and then it further damages the part of our immune system that repairs the damaged DNA, which will inevitably lead to rapid cancer growth like the turbo cancers that have suddenly started popping up all over the world post-vaccination. Suppression of type 1 interferon responses result in impaired innate immunity. That's another attack on the natural immune system. Think AIDS. The mRNA vaccines potentially cause increased risk to infectious diseases and cancer, which is what happens when something damages the immune system. Codon optimization results in G-rich mRNA that has unpredictable complex effects. This is the part of the 6,000 listed side effects of the mRNA COVID shot that can appear out of nowhere with no prior history and no warning and no relation to lifestyle or other triggering events. The abstract of the article states, In this paper, we present evidence that vaccination includes a profound impairment in type 1 interferon signaling, which has diverse adverse consequences to human health. Immune cells that have taken up the vaccine nanoparticles release into circulation large numbers of exosomes containing spike protein along with critical microRNAs that induce a signaling response in a recipient cell at distant sites. 
We also identify potential profound disturbances in regulatory control of protein synthesis and cancer surveillance. These disturbances potentially have a causal link to neurodegenerative disease, aka Parkinson's, myocarditis, that's heart problems, immune thrombocytopenia, blood disorders, Bell's palsy, that's facial paralysis, liver disease, and you don't need to be an alcoholic, impaired adaptive immunity, that's an inability of an immune system to adapt to new pathogens, something the NIH blamed on the COVID-19 virus, impaired DNA damage response and tumorogenesis, which are the inability of the body to repair DNA damage resulting in accelerated tumor growth, which is turbo cancer. We show, this is the conclusion, we show evidence from the VAERS database supporting our hypothesis. This is one of many hundreds of research and technical papers that have appeared in journal articles over the past two years to highlight the dangers of this particular novel, untested, unproven type of inoculation. On December 1, 2020, Dr. Michael Yeadon of Great Britain, a former vice president in charge of drug development at Pfizer, and Dr. Wolfgang Vodog of Germany filed a petition with the European Medicines Agency to stay the release of the MRI-NA COVID-19 injection. One of the predictions that they made was that the vaccine would cause widespread infertility after injection. Sasha writes, This prediction is now confirmed by a drastic drop in birth rates all over the world in high vaccinated countries by analysis of vSafe data using correct math and by the analysis of VAERS data from Dr. Rose, which is linked above. She references an article, the link, on the Daily Skeptic, which is titled, The Link Between the Massive Drop in Birth Rates and mRNA Vaccines is Undeniable, by Dr. Sven Roman and Dr. Jonathan Gilthorpe. That article concludes, Never in modern history has such a synchronized decline in birth rate been seen across the developed world precisely aligned with the massive rollout of a new and experimental medical treatment. So, one predicted effect of the bioweapon masquerading as a vaccine is induced infertility among a portion of the population. The doctors who predicted this have been regularly and viciously maligned in the mainstream media for the past three years, yet there's not a peep from the people who vilified them and ruined their reputations when they turn out to be right. Sasha, an expert in vaccine trial and production processes, calculated the actual number of spontaneous abortions in the Pfizer trial of pregnant women which never should have been conducted because drugs aren't normally tested on pregnant women until long into a proven safe period of use for men first and then women of non-reproductive age. When the calculation is run properly, test subject women in the first trimester of pregnancy experienced a staggering 82% miscarriage rate when the normal rate is just 10%. That's eight times the background rate. And women in the third trimester experienced a 1.5% stillbirth rate when the normal rate is 0.6%. That's a two and a half times normal rate. So where is the safe part of this safe and effective for pregnant women? She documents all of this at Trial Site News. But back to her original article. It continues. Additional, more sinister mechanisms of harm in COVID-19 shots include undisclosed components, aka lacing or spiking drugs with poisonous chemicals, a technique utilized in illicit drug trafficking, and now made fully legal for EUA, emergency use authorization, countermeasures under public health emergency by systematically removing all regulatory consumer protection and legal liability mechanisms. This is the key to the whole COVID-19 bioweapon deployment. Once the drug was approved by the Health and Human Services Secretary as emergency use authorized under the PREP Act, the drug being designated a countermeasure, which is a military term for something you shouldn't put in your veins, 
All consumer protections were eliminated regardless of how much damage or death resulted from the shot. In addition, all regulatory oversight of the normal drug development and deployment process was removed, and good manufacturing processes, regulatory parts of the production was suspended, and the drug maker and its distributors were provided full liability immunity from any negative outcomes, no matter what they were. By the way, the current version of the shot is still being deployed as a countermeasure under emergency use authorization. Sasha further explains, It took many years to put the legal laws in place so that mRNA laced with DNA laced with SV40 and other stealth components could be injected into pregnant women and children under a trillion-dollar campaign of fear-mongering, threats, and gaslighting by the U.S. government, military pharma cartel, and its accomplices in academia, healthcare, and the media. Wow, there's a lot in that sentence, so let's highlight a few items. The SHOT is a modified RNA transportation system that is designed to emplace a snippet of code into the cells of the human body. It's not supposed to have actual DNA in the transportation packages, but it does. And it has millions of times the quantity of DNA that is normally allowed for any drug. The danger with DNA is that it's not controlled, so it's hard to say what effect it might have on a cell. One such snippet of DNA is SV40, which is the abbreviation for Simian Virus 40, an exceptionally dangerous piece of DNA that was created in a bioweapons laboratory decades ago and is a known trigger for aggressive turbo cancers of the kind that are suddenly popping up all over the world post-vaccination. The rest of her sentence just includes all the accomplices who are necessary to pull this off. The article continues, Compartmentalization, love of paycheck, just following orders, or it doesn't say making bioweapons on my SBIR grant proposal. See, I'm a good scientist does not fly as defense in the only court that matters. And that would be the court of God. There was and there is a very long, complex, and nefarious relationship among the DOD, FDA, academia, and the various pharmaceutical companies for the development of this mRNA technology, which is briefly explained on another Substack investigational website called Entropy Wave. Not even the U.S. government can deploy a very sophisticated bioweapon worldwide without a large number of experts and organizations working closely together to make it happen. These individuals and organizations are co-conspirators in the world's largest and most elaborate racketeering and murder operation, and probably the most profitable one of all time. Just like at the Nuremberg trials, it's not acceptable from a human perspective to claim lack of knowledge and responsibility simply because a person is developing only a part of a weapon under a government contract or a contract approved by the government. There are many co-conspirators involved in this operation, and they work at really famous institutions. She goes on, Did Robert Langer at MIT know that Moderna's technology can be made into weapons when he co-founded it in 2011? You bet! Actually, not you, Steve Kirsch bet Robert Langer $10 million for another debate to which Langer will of course not show up. She says, I promise to humbly apologize for this statement if he does show up. That's a great idea, Steve, she writes, but a better use of $10 million, may I suggest, may be to buy several congresspeople, they're cheap, and get them to dismantle the illegal laws enabling EUA countermeasures and pandemic preparedness racket, starting with the PREP Act, the government's license to kill. Sasha is referring to Steve Kirsch, Silicon Valley millionaire and founder of the Vaccine Safety Research Foundation. This is what he wrote on his substack. MIT Institute professor Robert Langer is co-founder of Moderna. He's a billionaire. $10 million is easily affordable by him. 
I just left him a phone message where I offered to donate $10 million to MIT if he would debate me when I speak at MIT on November 30th in the Kirsch Auditorium. If he wins, I will make the donation. If he loses, he donates $10 million to VSRF, which is his foundation. I said if he was too busy, he could send as many people as he wanted to in his place. I'm even willing to do the debate with one hand tied behind my back, just to be fair. So far, no word from Professor Langer. I made a similar offer to MIT Dean of Science Nurgos Mayval Vala. You can bring as many people as you want to defend MIT's position to vaccinate students. I will come alone, armed with my slide deck and critical thinking skills. Professor Langer won't accept, nor will he send a group of people in his place. If he shows up, he'll lose. That would destroy his company, so he'll ignore my offer. Why? Because the evidence is overwhelming that hundreds of thousands of people have been killed by the COVID vaccines. It's very likely that my friend, MIT professor Paul Lagache, was killed by the COVID shot as well. Paul and I were in the same suite at MIT for four years. Paul died in his own swimming pool. He drowned. Paul was vaccinated with a COVID vaccine and died 100 days afterwards after being vaccinated, which is the most probable time to die after the second shot. This has to stop, but so far, pretty much everyone supporting the safe and effective narrative refuses to discuss the evidence, even for a $10 million prize. End of the article. Now, MIT is a pretty well-known institution that's filled with all kinds of very bright and successful people, including lots of doctors, MDs, and research scientists. Why is it that they can't find anyone to debate Steve Kirsch for an easy win $10 million prize if he's just a crazy conspiracy theorist? I mean, the vaccine is safe and effective, right? Everyone knows that. Should be like taking a big fat roll of money out of a baby's crib. So it's very interesting that they can't find the time to show up. Maybe it's because they know that although pharma is immune from lawsuits for deploying a bioweapon on us, that's not necessarily the case for really, really smart PhD professors at academic institutions. Who are all these people who know nothing, nothing about making bioweapons from their science? Or as Sasha put it in her article, who knew it was a biochemical weapon, poison, and when did they know it? Did any senior scientists at the Vaccine Research Center know? VRC is the CDC, that's the Center for Disease Control, shop where they design these things and test them on mice and black orphan children. Don't worry, the latter mostly happens in Africa via staged outbreaks of various epidemics in collaboration with the CIA, usually after the death fairy named Bill Gates visits there with his many philanthropic programs. Only evil Fauci at the NIH tests toxic drugs on foster children in the United States. The CDC, a totally different and unrelated part of the U.S. government, has moral and ethical standards, you all. Their senior scientists never think that they work on bioweapons, and therefore they don't. To think that they do, that's hate. We need unity and the spirit of healing nowadays, not hate. But I digress, she says. After satisfactory testing, VRC gives their babies to private companies in which the VRC staffers personally hold financial interest. Purely for the greater good of humanity, of course. VRC gave Moderna COVID vaccine candidates and ran most of Moderna's fraudulent preclinical studies because your government loves to help private companies and because, well, trust the science. I often quote this Air Force report on bioweapons. They clearly knew in 1997 that gene therapy, as mRNA vaccines were called until the middle of 2020, was easily weaponizable technology. Jason Group historically included mostly nuclear physicists, but more recently includes many biomolecular genetic top scientists, including current head of the Salk Institute, Gerald Joyce. End of her article. 
According to Wikipedia, the Jason Group is an independent group of elite scientists which advise the United States government on sensitive matters of science and technology. The Air Force report she mentions is titled Next Generation Bioweapons, the Technology of Genetic Engineering Applied to Biowarfare and Bioterrorism. As I said before, the Department of Defense does not study anything out of humanitarian concerns. Everything it's involved with has at its focus a weapon of war, either an offensive weapon that can be used against an enemy or a defensive system that can mitigate damage from an enemy. The DOD, on its best day, is not interested in spending a dime to find out how to make life better for civilians. Everything they deal with has a military-centric focus. Sasha followed up by asking the following question. Were VRC senior scientists at the CDC aware of this Air Force report or similar numerous publications? Did they know that mRNA and DNA biologics are easily weaponizable? It's hard to believe that they did not. In any case, the institutions they belong to have a responsibility to know this as they are working on dual-use research of concern. Uh, That's research that can be used both for beneficial purposes and for deadly weaponization purposes. And often with select agents, and that means deadly materials like pathogens. In 2018, the top scientists knew the same thing that was known in 1997, but in much more detail. So much more, in fact, that they authored an entire textbook dedicated to this topic. And here she cites one of many textbooks on this topic, which is titled Biodefense in the Age of Synthetic Biology by the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, Division on Earth and Life Studies, Board on Life Sciences, Board on Chemical Sciences and Technology, Committee on Strategies for Identifying and Addressing Potential Biodefense Vulnerabilities, Posed by Synthetic Biology. Whew, these academics do like a lot of words. She asks the following follow-up questions. Do senior scientists of CDC VRC read books like this? Do they go to scientific and defense conferences and talk to other scientists like people listed below? Well, of course they do. I've worked in commercializing scientific research for many years, and in each discipline of science, all of them know each other and follow each other's research. It's an absurdity to claim that Fauci is bad, but VRC senior scientists are pure naive souls. No, Sasha, they're not naive souls. They are co-conspirators in the most elaborate attack on humanity ever to be unleashed. Sasha cites the biographies of many of the authors in this book about biowarfare, and let that sink in. These people are all intimately involved in biowarfare programs. You should know where these authors work. They all work at the top research and academic institutions in America, ones with which the government regularly consults and to which it gives large government grants to do things that are mostly classified so that you and I can't find out what they are. All of these people are very familiar with the concepts contained in the title Biodefense in the Age of Synthetic Biology because they wrote a book about it. So let's look at the first few bios and see who these people are. The first one is Michael Imperial Chair, Ph.D., of the Arthur F. Thurneau Professor and Associate Chair of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Michigan Medical School. His research focuses on the molecular biology of the small DNA tumor virus BK Paloma virus and specifically on how the virus traffics through the cell and interacts with the host intrinsic immune functions. In other words, how to transfect cells with harmful weapons cargo. Dr. Imperiel is a previous member of the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity and has been deeply involved in the policy discussion regarding the potential risks and benefits of -of gain-of-function research. 
In 2010, he was elected as a fellow of the American Academy of Microbiology and was named a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in 2011. He is the founding editor-in-chief of M-Sphere, a technical journal article, and also serves as an editor for M-Bio, another one. In addition to his laboratory research, Dr. Imperial is involved in science policy. He serves on the Committee on Science, Technology, and Law at the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, and previously served on the Planetary Protection Subcommittee at NASA. Dr. Imperial received his BA, MA, and PhD from Columbia University, all in biological sciences. So Dr. Imperial is extremely well-connected with the people in both public institutions and the federal government who are conducting biowarfare research and applications of synthetic biology within a biowarfare environment. Do you think that he might have known that mRNA technology is a central component of both biowarfare and synthetic biology before it was rolled out to the world in the form of a shot? Might he have known that this is the kind of knowledge that the world may want to know before they injected mRNA technology into their veins? Did he say anything to the world about this application of the technology via his very prominent position? Well, of course not. There are contracts and careers at stake. Then there is Patrick Boyle, Ph.D., who is the head of design at Ginkgo Bioworks, a Boston-based synthetic biology company that makes and sells engineered organisms. Dr. Boyle's team provides design tools and synthetic biology expertise to Ginkgo's organism engineers and is an integral part of Ginkgo's design, build, test, and ferment strategy for organism engineering. Dr. Boyle has extensive hands-on experience with the day-to-day applications of synthetic biology, as well as with working with the existing regulatory structure surrounding synthetic biology. Dr. Boyle received his Ph.D. in Biological and Biomedical Sciences from Harvard Medical School. Synthetic biology, in case you've forgotten, is defined as a multidisciplinary field of science that focuses on designing organisms for useful purposes by engineering them to have new abilities. All forms of technology can conceivably be used to advance some good for humanity, and those kinds of uses are always used to justify these new technologies. However, a potential for beneficial use may or may not have anything to do with the actual reason for developing a technology. We should also remember that all technologies can be used for evil, malevolent, diabolical purposes, and those purposes are never spoken about in public and are rarely broached in the press. Synthetic biology is one such technology. The field of synthetic biology has two subfields. One that uses unnatural molecules to reproduce emergent behaviors from natural biology with the goal of creating artificial life, and the other seeks interchangeable parts from natural biology to assemble into systems that act unnaturally. And those are not my definitions. They are vetted and approved for publication at genome.gov, so they are your government's definitions. This is the same government that made synthetic bioengineering a national priority by executive order shortly after Biden was emplaced into office. If we would just let those definitions sink in a bit, we might be a bit more hesitant to trust the science. One side of synthetic biology uses unnatural molecules to affect the behavior of natural organisms, of which people are a subset, with the goal of producing artificial life. Artificial life would be life that is divorced from God. The other side of synthetic biology uses parts from natural biology, and those parts could come from any natural organism, like bacteria, viruses, reptiles, snakes, fungi, birds, fish. Everything is up for grabs in this game, 
and it uses those parts to assemble into systems that act unnaturally. Systems are components of higher life forms like people. So you might have a perfectly well-functioning immune system, for example, but by inserting parts from other organisms into your immune system components, you may find you have an immune system that behaves unnaturally. Maybe it will start producing toxins rather than combating them. This new fun technology is being funded by DARPA and the DOD to make, what, improvements to life? Or weapons of war? Let's step away from Sasha for a moment and into the world of transhumanism, which falls into the category of creating artificial life, the first part of this definition. Transhumanism is not a wild conspiracy theory, and it's not the private fantasy of a few odd people. It is a mainstream objective among the people who control the world's economic resources and the people who control the world's most advanced militaries and the intellectual elite of academia and the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization and the United Nations. China is big on transhumanism because it's helping them create super soldiers with capabilities that far exceed natural human bodies. On December 8, 2020, NBC News published an article titled China has done human testing to create biologically enhanced super soldiers, says top U.S. official. The article reads, John Ratcliffe, the director of national intelligence, included the explosive claim in a long Wall Street Journal op-ed in which he made the case that China poses the preeminent national security threat to the U.S. Last year, two American scholars wrote a paper examining China's ambitions to apply biotechnology to the battlefield including what they said were signs that China was interested in using gene-editing technology to enhance human, and perhaps soldier, performance. Specifically, the scholars explored Chinese research using the gene-editing tool CRISPR, short for Clusters of Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. CRISPR has been used to treat genetic diseases and modify plants, but Western scientists consider it unethical to seek to manipulate genes to boost the performance of healthy people. One prominent Chinese general, they noted, said in 2017 that modern biotechnology and its integration with information, nanotechnology, and the cognitive, etc. domains will have revolutionary influences upon weapons and equipment, the combat spaces, the forms of warfare, and military theories. Remember, no high-value technology ever makes it to the news until it has been well-tested and developed to the point of being deployable. What we are told and allowed to see and hear is usually 10 to 20 years behind where the developers are in actual technological development. So notice what the Chinese general said in 2017. He said modern biotechnology will be integrated with both information technology, think 5G and the Internet of Everything, and nanotechnology, that would be the so-called mRNA technology, as well as the cognitive domain that means influencing or controlling how and what people think, otherwise known as mind control, all of which will radically affect weapon systems and equipment that is used in the combat space. The forms of warfare that are deployed against the enemy, whoever that is, and the very theory of military action itself. So these are the times we're living in. A BBC article on February 7th, 2021 referenced a comment by Vladimir Putin in 2017 where he said that humanity could soon create something worse than a nuclear bomb. They quoted him as saying, One may imagine that a man can create a man with some given characteristics, not only theoretically, but also practically. He can be a genius mathematician, a brilliant musician, or a soldier. A man who can fight without fear, compassion, regret, or pain. 
Now, when somebody starts out with the phrase, one can imagine, especially a politician, it's a nice way to say that they are already working to create this new man. And that was 2017. Who are these theys who are working to create this lovely, brave new world? Back to Sasha's list of contributors to the book Biodefense in the Age of Synthetic Biology. People like Peter A. Carr, Ph.D., senior scientist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Lincoln Laboratory, where he leads the Synthetic Biology Research Program. His research interests span genome engineering, rapid prototyping of both hardware and wetware, DNA synthesis and error correction, risk evaluation, and biodefense. Dr. Carr is the director of judging for the International Genetically Engineered Machine Competition, got to get those young minds involved, and is deeply knowledgeable about both the practice and the potential implications of synthetic biology with a special focus on the potential impacts on biodefense. Dr. Carr received his bachelor's degree in biochemistry from Harvard and his PhD in biochemistry and molecular biophysics from Columbia University. Wow! Dr. Carr would have you believe that he is not deeply knowledgeable in the misguided twisted evil practice and implications of synthetic biology, but rather in the practice of it for biodefense, which means for the practice of biowarfare. Gosh, they love words. Who else contributed to this book? Well, there is Douglas Densmore, PhD, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering and a Harari Institute for Computing and Computational Science and Engineering faculty fellow, both of which are at Boston University. His research focuses on the development of tools for the specification, design, and assembly of synthetic biological systems, drawing upon his experience with embedded system-level design and electronic design automation. He is the director of the Cross-Disciplinary Integration of Design Automation Research Group at Boston University, where his team of staff and postdoctoral researchers, undergraduate interns, and graduate students develops computational and experimental tools for synthetic biology. He is the lead investigator for the National Science Foundation Expedition's Living Computing Project and a senior member of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers and the Association for Computing Machinery. Dr. Densmore received his PhD in electrical engineering from the University of California, Berkeley. Now, maybe all those big words don't mean much to you, so let's break them down a little bit. Synthetic biology is the merging of biology and machine. It is a necessary precursor to transhumanism. Dr. Densmore and his large team of excited college students are busily merging biology and technology at the cellular and subcellular level. This is where a natural life form is modified to become a very unnatural life form. If anyone tells you that the bioweapon masquerading as a vaccine is just a biological tool of health advancement, you can now be sure that's a lie. It is the merging of biology with technology, including the electrical and computational part, to produce a hybrid something that lives inside our bodies. Do you wonder why electrical engineers need to be part of synthetic biology biodefense? It's because synthetic biology is the merging of biology and machine, and because you need electrical engineers for the machine part of that step. There are many more contributors to that book that Sasha lists in her article, with even more horrifying contributions to the weapon that is still being actively deployed against humanity. Now, why are they doing this, you might ask? Because the objective of the people who run this world is to transform living organisms into hybrid, synthetically designed organisms, and then into fully synthetic organisms. And they don't hide their plans. They, the real rulers of this age, 
want fundamental change to come to biological life, especially human life, which is the very thing that God has imposed restraints on us from doing. Recall that Jesus said in Matthew 24:37 that the end times would be like the days of Noah. What was going on in Noah's day that was so bad that God had to send a flood to wipe out most life on the planet and incarcerate some very powerful angels in the deepest part of the abyss? Well, the angels were trying to fundamentally alter life on earth by interbreeding with human women and animals to produce hybrids that are called Nephilim in the Bible and which we today refer to as mythological figures. And in this latter-day version of the days of Noah, man is trying once again to alter at a very fundamental level what God has created. And I think there is good reason to believe that the fallen angels may be involved once again. But we won't go into that. In Psalm 2, it says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. This is God reflecting on the end times when the kings of the world, the people who actually run everything, and the rulers, who are the political leaders, take counsel together. And that's called a conspiracy. The people who run the world set themselves, meaning that they take a stand against Yahweh and his anointed. Now, prior to very recent times, the whole world did not know who Yahweh and his anointed were, so the leaders of the world could not have taken counsel together against them. But today, the whole world knows who these words refer to, so this psalm clearly was a future prophecy looking forward to today or sometime in the near future. And what are they taking a stand and plotting against? The bonds and cords that restrain them. Well, what's that? The rulers of the world are not physically restrained from doing anything at all, and they are not financially restrained from doing whatever they want, nor are they locationally constrained. So, what is this constraint that they so despise? It's the constraint of their biological bodies that tick inexorably down to death. They want to break the bonds of death so that they can live forever, which is what God was worried about in the Garden of Eden when he kicked out Adam and Eve after they sinned. It wasn't their sinfulness or uncleanness that he was worried about. It was that they might eat of the tree of life and live forever. And that would have doomed them and us to an eternity apart from God. But that is what the world leaders of today want. And you don't have to believe me. Just go to that oracle of all modern information, the great and all-knowing eye of information that is controlled by the globalists, that some call Wikipedia, and ask it. It has a word for this desire, and that word is transhumanism. According to Wikipedia, transhumanism is a philosophical and intellectual movement which advocates the enhancement of the human condition by developing and making widely available sophisticated technologies that can greatly enhance longevity and cognition. Some transhumanists believe that human beings may eventually be able to transform themselves into beings with abilities so greatly expanded from the current condition as to merit the label of post-human beings. While many people believe that all transhumanists are striving for immortality, it is not necessarily true. Hank Pellissier, managing director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, at least in 2011, surveyed transhumanists and found that of the 818 respondents, 24% did not want immortality. Oh, so only three quarters of the transhumanist respondents wanted to live forever. Well, what about the ones who are driving the transhumanist agenda? What do they want? They want to break the bonds and cords that tie them to mortality so that they can live forever, and God and his anointed are not going to stand in their way, they think. That is the meaning of Psalm 2. Now listen to the words of a very prominent, very active advocate for the transhumanist agenda. 
His name is Steve Fuller, and he is the Auguste Comte Professor of Social Epistemology in the Department of Sociology at the University of Warwick, United Kingdom. This is what he wrote for Lifeboat.com back on September 8, 2015, accessed via the Wayback Machine via Wikipedia. One of the biggest existential challenges that transhumanists face is that most people don't believe a word we're saying, however entertaining they may find us. They think we're fantasists when, in fact, we're talking about a future just over the horizon. This is in 2015. So let's be clear about who these naysayers are. These are people who live in the space of their largely self-imposed limitations, which function as a self-fulfilling prophecy. They are programmed for destruction, not genetically, but intellectually. Someone of a more dramatic turn of mind would say that they are suicide bombers trying to manufacture a climate of terror in humanity's existential horizons. They roam the earth as death waiting to happen. So much is clear. If you're a transhumanist, ordinary people are zombies. Zombies are normally seen as either externally revived corpses or bodies in a state between life and death. So how does one deal with zombies, especially when they are the majority of the population? There are three general options. Number one, you avoid them. Number two, you kill them once and for all. And number three, you enable them to be fully alive. Now, if this is what these people write in public, what do you suppose they talk about in private? And I can tell you this. They have no intention of just ignoring you any longer than is absolutely necessary. So that leaves two options if you won't buy into their nightmare dystopian future. You can be killed or you can be tricked. They will kill you to get you out of the way, or they will trick you and transhumanify your body for your own supposed good. And you may not be too terribly shocked to learn that these are the very two things that the Bible goes on at length to warn us about in its end times passages. Widespread killing and deception. Oh, it's all so bleak! What can we possibly do about it, Peter? Well, you can pray that we all experience the best possible outcome so we can continue to live our sensual and materialistic lives in comfort and pleasure until we die. Or you can tune in next week or next month or whenever I manage to pull together the next episode and hear some concrete things that we can do to prepare for the coming end time events that the Bible says cannot be avoided no matter how much we really, 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 really want it all to be untrue. In the meantime, remember the words of 2 Corinthians 6.17 that says, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And also Ephesians 5.11 that says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Both ideas are the same. We are commanded to stop participating in the evil of Satan's kingdom. If you know something's evil, or if you know something is advancing the agenda of evil, then stop supporting it. My favorite example is Disney World. Lots of people love Disney and Disney World. Yet Disney is an evil corporation that is advancing an agenda of evil in America and around the world. So stop going there. Stop buying Disney products. Stop watching Disney movies. Stop teaching your children to love the cuteness of Disney characters because all it does is hide and mask a grotesque evil that lurks behind a facade of fun entertainment like a pedophile behind a clown suit. Look, I know it's hard because it's hard for me and we have good company. In Matthew 19, a rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked him what he could do to inherit the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, give up the things of Satan and follow me. Okay, Jesus actually said, give away your stuff and follow me, but it amounts to the same thing. And the rich young ruler went away sad because he had a lot of stuff. What a wretch, we think. Well, don't judge him too quickly. 
when we are confronted with the same choice, do we give up the things we love and identify with and that makes us feel good and exchange them for a hard and unpleasant life? Or do we go away sad or angry or offended or dismissive because we don't like the choice we were given any more than the rich young ruler did? Think about that the next time you're faced with such a decision. We all fail the same way the rich young ruler did, so we should ask ourselves regularly and often which we would rather really have. The pleasures of this world or the hardships of Jesus Christ? Figure out which one you really want and then pray about it. Start there. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and punch that sign, symbol, or button to encourage others to listen. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeartPlayer, FM, Listen Notes, Pandora, Samsung Podcasts, Podchaser, and undergroundchristian.net. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Lord God, we fail miserably at being obedient even daily. How can we resist the temptations of daily pleasures for the hardship of obedience to Christ? On our own, it's impossible, just like fighting the kingdom of darkness is impossible on our own. So please send help. Send the power of the Spirit to fight alongside us, strengthening, strengthening us when we are weak, and putting us back on our feet when we fail. Rip from our souls the sensual desires to sin and serve the creature rather than the Creator. Make sin so ugly and distasteful that we run from it into the arms of hardship just to get away from it for a moment. And on our way, don't let us forget that everyone around us is fighting the same battles, some less successfully than others. Put in us the spirit of resistance to fight the spirits that resist the call to Christ's kingdom and help us to always be willing to help those who want to fight with Jesus Christ, even when they fail miserably, being kind and compassionate and forgiving as you are with us. And we ask all this in Christ's name for the glory of his kingdom. Amen. Amen.